Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. Hester Prynne had wandered, without rule or guidance, in a moral wilderness, as vast, as intricate and shadowy, as the untamed forest amid the gloom of which they were now holding a colloquy that was to decide their fate. Her intellect and heart had their home, as it were, in desert places, where she roamed as freely as the wild Indian in his woods. For years past, she had looked from this estranged point of view at human institutions, and whatever priests or legislators had established criticizing all with hardly more reverence than the Indian would feel for the clerical band, the judicial robe, the pillory, the gallows, the fireside, or the church. The tendency of her fate and fortunes had been to set her free. The scarlet letter was her passport into regions where other women dared not tread. Shame, despair, solitude. These had been her teachers, stern and wild ones, and they had made her strong, but taught her much amiss. How do we find and define a world in which we can all flourish? Carol Gilligan reads Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850 novel, The Scarlet Letter, which he bases on a woman in 1640s Puritan New England who stands outside and apart from society, unpopular, reviled, and punished for her transgression, and yet sees and finds a way to break out of the vicious cycle that keeps us locked in conditions that don't benefit anyone truly, and searching for what Hawthorne calls a new truth that would establish the whole relation between man and woman on a surer ground of mutual happiness. Carol Gilligan is the renowned psychologist whose work listening to girls and young women has revolutionized the field of developmental psychology. If you've read this scholar letter before, you'll be surprised and amazed how Carol can understand this book as a novel of resistance. And if this is your first time, you will be encouraged to turn to Hawthorne as containing some keys how to undo conditions that harm all of us. I am so happy and excited to sit here with Carol Gilligan, who's been a teacher, friend, mentor for a long time. First of all, Carol, thank you for joining me on Think About It. 
Well, thank you for inviting me to talk about Scarlet Letter. <laughs> it's thrilling to talk to you about Nathaniel Hawthorne's romance. I read this book like most people probably who are not currently in high school, in high school. Do you know it's, I mean, I've been told, the third most read book in American high schools. Which is an interesting question. What do you think they want to teach the students with this book? Well, I know what I was taught in high school, which is this is a book about the wages of sin. And about the price and you have to pay for yeah, doing the wrong yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about the wages of sin. And, da, 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 da. and, and that's so all I remembered. I honestly remember. That's right. I remember two things. So it's, and I tragic remember, love. And it was written in 1850. I was a bit confused, to be honest, in high school. It's 1850, but it's set in 1640. Right. And I thought... Is he writing? Is he one of those Puritan <laughs> settlers in, in Bay Colony? And actually, the book is a historical novel already when it's written. And Well, I mean, there's so many interesting things about this book. What I have to tell you is, much later in my life, when I was in the midst of doing my research with girls, a cousin of one of my daughters-in-law said to me, Carol, have you read Scarlet Letter? And I thought, yeah, yeah, The Wages of Sin, you know, <laughs> right. tragic love story. And she said, no, 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 have you read Scarlet Letter? She said, you have to go back and reread it. And I went back and I read a novel that I hadn't seen. And but I thought, really, right now, I think this is the American novel. And, I mean, the American novel because it deals with, I mean, two just quintessentially American themes. One is the tension between the ideal of American democracy, this shining city on a hill, and do you know the word patriarchy is all through this novel, patriarchal deacon, patriarchal. So the tension, the conflict between the vision of the city on the hill and the persistence of patriarchal power and privilege, a great quote from the novel, and also between this vision, this pure vision of God who can be worshipped by anyone, anywhere. I mean, in your house, in the forest, in the church. That's why they taught girls to read, because everyone had to read the Bible. This unmediated relationship with God and the persistence of an all-male clerical hierarchy. So these two tensions, which are just... So Hawthorne takes them up. The second thing I find out is Jim, my husband, is giving a talk on stigma. And he looks up the word stigma in the dictionary. And there's a person called Mr. William Prind. Have you heard of him? Prind the printer, right? <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> who accuses the Archbishop of Laud of, of misreading the Bible. And he's tried and he's found guilty of stigmata laudis, of you know, saying something bad about an authority. And they burn the letters S and L into his cheeks. And he, in the boat going to the tower where he's going to be imprisoned, makes up this poem where he turns the S. But he's turning this sign, this outward sign that's being branded as a sinner, as a criminal, into a matter of pride and revises it. Well, he, he calls it stigmata laudis. I mean, as opposed to, I, I have, we have to we remember what, what's the, what the actual what, what the legal actual, the sentence is. Yeah, it's a bad sentence. And just like in the novel, the word adultery is never mentioned. Right. And he translated it into sanctum laudum, holy prayers. So, yeah. To go back to when you said the first time you read it, it was taught as the story of a person who committed a grave sin or crime, Hester Prynne, who's committed adultery. It's then put in front of the public, branded as somebody who has sinned, somehow stays in the community and has to wear this letter throughout her life. And that's what I remember from the high school reading. 
and she turns this slowly into a badge of pride, which is a very American thing to turn as sort of declaration of your inferior status into something to be proud of. But that's about the lesson you were taught in high school, that as a woman, you're supposed to follow the rules. Otherwise, this is going to happen to you. And it's a kind of cautionary tale. I didn't remember the parts you just said when you reread it, that it has something to do with power, with how society set up, the promise of democracy. I didn't get that reading in my high school introduction I mean, to this. If you had said to me, do you think the word patriarchy appears in Scarlet Letter, I would say, are you kidding? I mean, yeah, it's all about how, you know, women and da, da, da. But the thing about Hester Prynne is it's not just that she turns it, it's the community does. And at a certain point midway through, there's a chapter called Another View of Hester, and it says that many people forgot the original signification of the A, and they said it meant able, so strong was Hester Prynne with a woman's strength. And then you start to see everything in the novel is seen twice. And even in the introduction, in that custom house section, Hawthorne, the narrator, the unnamed narrator says, for the romance writer, midnight is the friend, because midnight in a familiar room shows all the objects so distinctly, but unlike a noon visibility. In other words, you're seeing familiar objects, but you're seeing them in a different light. So here's the A, which you're used to being seen, seeing as adultery. And you see that, in fact, it makes her able. And it's explicit in the novel. It's so amazing to realize it's there and I didn't see it. Because it says that because she can't fit into the framework of Puritanism. In Puritanism, you're either a good wife, that's a term from the novel, or you're a witch. Now, she can't be a good wife walking around with this A on her chest, and she can't be a witch or they would take her daughter away. So she doesn't fit into the framework. The A puts her outside the framework, and if you're outside the framework, you can see the frame. She becomes the character, and Hawthorne is explicit about that. She sees the world from a different place. She and, says, I see. But she stays in this world in a complicated way because the society condemns her to be part of society, but not. She lives in a little cottage outside of the town. She comes in. She starts actually also having a profession because she knows how to embroider things. So she becomes the woman who everyone from the highest to the lowest go to to have adornment, ornament, which is in itself a challenge to this Puritan idea of aestheticism. And and she adorns the A with gold thread. Adorns the A with gold thread. And it becomes a badge of honor in a way for her, or at least a badge of apartness, of being a See, I would say a badge of freedom. Of freedom. Because it puts her outside the frame so she can see the framework. But this reading that she's the voice of freedom. That's your latter reading. That's yeah. not the first high school reading. No. You were not taught this as no. a... No, <laughs> because the novel frames it in one way and then shows... And if you start to look, it's like another view of Hester, another view of the minister, another view of this and this and this. And then you have to say also Hawthorne in 1850, he writes this book in the six months after his mother has died. And as a small boy, he saw his mother shamed you know, by the more aristocratic family of his father who died in, at the sea in Surrey, you know, so forth. And so you realize in the wake of his mother's death and the emotional turmoil, he says it was the only time he ever avoided his adamant, meaning the critical voice inside him, and the only time he wrote with that kind of freedom. And it's almost like somebody, you know, like in a kind of 
sudden light, sees something and writes it down almost, I have a sense, before he knew what he was writing. So he's also the father of a six-year-old child. And people have written many things about Pearl in the novel, but to me, and I did this work with girls, she's observed. She's not just imagined because she is the one person who sees through the hypocrisy of the Puritans. Let's talk about Pearl for a moment. So Hester Prynne gets convicted, but she's relegated to this kind of margin of society. She lives in the town. The town slowly gets used to her. She refuses to divulge the name of the man whose child she now has and raises by herself. Her husband plays an important role there. He disguises as a doctor and becomes this manipulative, very terrifying figure. Pearl is the voice of what then? It's really interesting. She's this impish child, uh, doesn't quite have a complete connection to the reality she lives in, it seems, and signals something else about this world. And I'm interested, she's the kind of supernatural dimension that American literature has always had, this gothic from Edgar Allan Poe to Toni Morrison and Stephen King. We've always had this strain of the fantastic. But so Pearl is, you said, real, not just made up. Observe. I mean, I think everything you say is true, and I would say she's also the child of nature. That in a sense, she's put outside. And, you know, with Hester, it's her pregnancy that convicts her. I Which mean, is the evidence of her, yeah, uh, because her okay. husband hasn't been around for two years, That's so she right. must so she be pregnant. Sex. Yeah, so she had sex, and she <laughs> has a baby now, and so she has this baby. She has a baby in prison, and for the first time and then when the novel opens, she steps into the sunlight with this infant in her arms. Exactly. Exposed to the township, which is, first of all, several women. We hear several women commenting on her. And can you say a little bit about she steps into the space and the women have strong opinions Well, what the women say, it's, it's like the story of William Prynne. They should have branded these letters. I mean, when you think of the S and the L from the story of, of William Prynne, and we have to look up what they... They mean for because for some reason anyway, um, that she steps out and the women say they should have branded these letters on her cheeks, and the S and L, they are scarlet letter. Right. You know? Interesting. Oh, okay, so there's a precedent. So, and many of the names in this novel are historical names. I mean, Wilson, Reverend Wilson was the Reverend Governor. He the, was the Governor. The Bay Colony. So there's actual historical precedent. There's Hawthorne totally, himself had a yeah. an ancestor who was involved in the Salem witch trials, which he learned about, and Hawthorne distanced himself from this person. When the women see Hester Prynne for the first time, she steps out with this beauty and intimidating kind of grace that she actually has sort of upright bearing stands there. Do you know she's the only one called woman? All the other women are called good wives. Go on. And their response, I'm trying to remember when I was a high school student, they condemn her, judge her, demean her. There's one woman who may, the youngest one who probably has some sympathy, but everybody else is very harsh. So as a reader's when we're reading a book, we are in the audience meeting this character for the first time. I think there's a bit of when high school students read it, you think she did something wrong. She must be punished. Oh, yeah, totally. And that's, the women that's are not the... on her side. They're not saying, oh, there's a woman being wrongly convicted and society's harsh. They're saying, well, she committed a crime. So I think he sets us up a little bit in this audience, introducing his main characters. And we as readers are not ready yet to see the voice or the symbol of freedom. I would say I totally agree that he sets us up and then he undercuts it because she walks around and she says she walks around and she's surprised because women seem to recognize it. And then people seek her out and tell them her secrets and everything else. 
And so, you know, I mean, it really gets the doubleness of this. And here's the story the way you're supposed to see it. And now look at it in this light. And suddenly you're seeing a very different story here. I think, I mean, to what extent Hawthorne actually deliberately did this, but that is certainly what he did. There's a doubleness, and it's a complicated doubleness because she's in a position to say something and to see something about her own society that's given to her only by being ostracized. Exactly, exactly. You know, and we know this, that you cannot see a framework if you're in the framework. It's just the way of seeing. The world's law was no law for her mind. It was an age in which the human intellect, newly emancipated, had taken a more active and a wider range than for many centuries before. Men of the sword had overthrown nobles and kings. Men bolder than these had overthrown and rearranged, not actually, but within the sphere of theory, which was their most real abode, the whole system of ancient prejudice, wherewith was linked much of ancient principle. Hester Prynne imbibed the spirit. She assumed a freedom of speculation, then common enough on the other side of the Atlantic, but which our forefathers, had they known of it, would have held to be a deadlier crime than that stigmatized by the scarlet letter. In her lonesome cottage by the seashore, thoughts visited her, such as dared to enter no other dwelling in New England. Shadowy guests that would have been as perilous as demons to their entertainer, could they have been so much as a knocking at her door. It's like why we say it's important, you know, to travel to another country, to be in another culture, because it's like saying a fish doesn't know it's swimming in water until it's a fish out of water. And so the minute that her pregnancy reveals that she has done something, which in terms of that community is great sin and should be punished and everything else, meanwhile, the guy goes completely free because he's not pregnant and you can't tell who he is except, of course, the child. The minute that happens, she's put outside by virtue of nature. And I think nature plays a huge role in this novel. And there's a beautiful passage about two-thirds of the way through that says love is a force of nature. And wherever you have that, it brings sunshine and brings Mm -hmm. life. So you have basically, I mean, I think you could say this is a novel about the struggle between love and patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the end... Hester Prynne, when she goes back, and that's an interesting question, why does she go back? She frees her daughter. She takes her daughter out. She tries to free Dimsdale, her lover, and he starts to go, and then he gets scared, and he goes back into the sort of whole puritanical, I've sinned, I've done this terrible thing, I'm this thing with the worst person in the world, and he dies. Right. She leaves, and then she goes back. And I think she goes back to take up, I mean, this is at least my reading, Dimsdale's failed mission. And she becomes, she ministers to the people in the community. She goes back into her cottage by the thing. And people come to her, they say, women especially, with dilemmas about love. And she says to them of her firm belief that when the world has grown ripe for it, now you have to think, that's 1850 he's writing, this is 1640, we're now 2018. When the world has grown ripe for it, a new truth will be revealed in order to establish the whole relation between man and woman on a sure ground of mutual happiness. And you think, wait a minute. What Hawthorne is saying is you cannot realize the political vision of a true democracy or this religious vision of an unmediated relationship with God 
without also dealing with this relationship between men and women. So the idea of a democracy here is an honest, truthful, new relation between men and women, among men and women. And among this everybody, is, is, yeah. And, and then among everybody, among men and men and women and women. But you can't have this inequality in, in personal life and have this vision of a shining city on a hill in political life. And she says midway through the novel in this chapter called Another View of Hester. I mean, this is Hawthorne signaling you. You know, it's like at the end, there's this discussion. Some people were there and they said there's an A on Dimsdale chest and other people were there and they saw the same thing and they said there's no A. And Hawthorne won't resolve it. What he says, though, is that if you're living in this kind of lie, after a while you lose your sense of what's, what's real and what's not real and what's true and what's not and true. The book starts in the Bay Colony. So this is people trying to getting out of England under this absolutist rule that the monarch rules and determines everything. So there's a sense of hope, a sense of establishing a new society. And what you're right. saying is what doesn't get broken with all that. There's a sentence in the, in the book. She breaks the broken chain. She leaves that behind. So Hester Prynne there's a hope that this society will be more free, mm-hmm. that it will actually lead to something like a democracy. We're far from it in 1640. You're saying patriarchy persists even in this new model. And Hester Prynne may be a way to say, unless we break with... The well, w- she says it. I mean, I'm first of all, I have to tell you, because I, I always think it's unfortunate that I'm talking about this because the word patriarchy is a word I use. It's Hawthorne who uses the word patriarchy, like right at the beginning. He says this patriarchal personage, this is in the introduction, right. you know, in one respect, so august, so impressive, so, and in another, a total non-entity. So it's like you can see this one way and then you can see it another. So Hester Prynne says midway through the novel, men of the sword have overthrown nobles and kings. This is because they beheaded Charles II. Men of philosophers have in the realm of theory... But, she says, you know, for women to have a fair and equal place in the new society, what you were just talked about, the essential nature, she says, of the opposite sex, and then you think, wait a minute, this is 1850 because Hawthorne sounds like a post-structuralist, or what through long hereditary habit has become like nature will have to be changed and that of women too. And that's harder than overthrowing nobles and kings. In other words, the psychological change is more daunting than the political change, but you can't have the political change without having the psychological change. As a first step, the whole system of society is to be torn down and built up anew. Then the very nature of the opposite sex or its long hereditary habit, which has become like nature, is to be essentially modified before women can be allowed to assume what seems a fair and suitable position. Finally, all other difficulties being obviated, woman cannot take advantage of these preliminary reforms until she herself shall have undergone a still mightier change, in which, perhaps, the other real essence, wherein she has her truest life, will be found to have evaporated. A woman never overcomes these problems by any exercise of thought. They are not to be solved, or only in one way. If her heart chance to come uppermost, they vanish. This is astonishing. And this psychological change, what you just said, that culture which starts to appear like nature to us, the conditions of our society which we take for granted because that's how it's always been. This is how we are comfortable. That's why I think those women in the beginning are quite important because they subscribe exactly to the structures of authority 
that we would call the patriarchy and completely supported, although Hester Prynne is a voice within there because she's ostracized, she's punished, and she accepts her punishment in this glaring way. She's not ashamed and withers away and shrinks away and hides herself. She actually becomes part of the community. It's a very difficult path for her, though. It's, there's a high cost to her freedom. She doesn't get embraced right away. She's mocked, vilified. Well, and it's, it's a treacherous path because it's constantly threatened with they will take the child away. And then there's a really interesting kind of undertone that I think it stays an undertone, which is at every moment when they push her to the point where they're going to take the child and she says, all right, then I'm going to tell you who the guy is, they pull back. And then you think, wait a minute, they're protecting the guy. They don't want her to say who he is because he's their golden boy. They're, you know, they're grooming him to become the new, you know, Reverend Reverend Wilson. Yeah, exactly. So he's a young minister, and we don't know this for parts of the book. We have a sense there's some strange symmetry between them, and there's some weird affection. And Pearl connects to him right away intuitively. And she's the only one. I mean, I really think he's playing with the insistence of the people in the community that Hester raised Pearl as a good Puritan child and so forth. At the same time, Hester is trying to protect this child and protect her kind of what's called her wildness, that is her natural spirit. And she is the only one who sees through the lie. I mean, she you, sees who's themselves. A lot of your work has been with girls and listening to girls. And as you describe in Joining the Resistance and in a Different Voice, Part of your own discovery was to listen to girls and hear something you yourself hadn't heard for a while when you studied first as a psychologist. You were part of the paradigm. You thought this is how human development happens. So Hester has this high tolerance for her daughter Pearl's naturalist, which is this really ungovernable child. She's a wild child in this community, and this mother accepts and tolerates that. And it's not an easy toleration. The child is really some you can't really handle at all. Did this connect in a way when you said it's not a made-up figure? It's actually I realism. Think, yeah, it's interesting, I mean, that you make the connection because, of course, because most of us think of Pearl as this little elf and so forth, and then you think, no, 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 she's a girl. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? Well, I think Hawthorne she, had she's a, a girl and daughter. she's a... He, she dresses her up in these incredibly beautiful gowns. She dresses up as a scarlet letter. She wears a scarlet gown when she meets the reverend and the minister. Hawthorne had a daughter, too. Just that age. I was interested that she is connected to something that then girls will lose or be taught to lose or, or repress or forget. Well, I love language in this book, the iron framework of Puritanism, the iron framework of reasoning that you have to be somehow brought into this framework so you cannot see outside this frame. And then Hester, by virtue of the pregnancy and having this child, says that she can't, she doesn't want to lose the child. So she's both inside and outside the framework, which is, you know, and, I mean, from a literary standpoint. In Scarlet Letter, there's another outside, which is the Native American population, totally. the forest and the Indians. And there's always, what in Hawthorne's language are Indians, they show up. They observe what's going on. And at some point, Hester's position is compared to that and said she is as far out of this community as 
anything that we don't consider part of civilization at that moment in time. And the Indians use nature, they use herbs as remedies that are healing. And Chillingworth, when he introduces himself to the community, presents himself as a physician with what he learned from the Native Americans. Her position, Hester's position, Pearl's position, it's at once outside and not outside. And as I just said, Native Americans are considered outside. They come frequently. They're trade. Totally. They're present. The Marin sailors at the, one of the final scenes, this is foreshadowing he'll influence Melville to write Moby Dick, <clears throat> that people at sea have their own laws, their own rules. It's out of the bounds of what we consider acceptable behavior. When they come to shore, people tolerate them, are quite afraid of them. So she's outside. But how does someone have a voice that questions the entire setup of society from this outside-inside position. I mean, you could, I would say, that this is, when I say, I think this is arguably the American novel because it takes on that question. And it takes it on, I mean, it's just stunning in the form of this character, this dazzling Hester Prynne. And showing you how she basically, how she navigates that. And, I mean, it's very difficult because at the end when she has this prophecy, I mean, she's, she's the, the bringer of the new truth. I mean, that's, it's astonishing. But she says, and then I think Hawthorne, I think of this as the catch-22 of feminism, that Hawthorne says, she says, but the woman who brings the new truth has to be pure and good and so forth. And then you think he's just shown you something that the woman who was able— you know, is able by virtue of being adulterated. So in other words, the very thing that enables her, you know, disables her. So the A is for able and the A is for adulterated, and that that's the catch-22 of feminism because the woman who can see the framework and who can speak about it has to be outside, and by virtue of being outside in the terms of the framework, she's an impure woman. I think we're living in the midst of that right now impure, not a good woman, not, not good. speaking in the right but way. But the good woman can't see the framework because she's completely within the framework. I mean, you could see this recently in the Blasey Ford Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, that was the dilemma for Blasey Ford. To be heard, she had to speak within the framework, but she was to be in the framework. I mean, if you she, think about that hearing, which which was a public spectacle as well, and, it's, and, and I mean in the it's sense an interesting, of spectacle it's an interesting as, a, analogy, as a scene yeah. of American culture, there was something being staged. It's right. a stage, it's public, we all observed it. So Blasey Ford had to be on her best behavior, the most proper, never actually even indicate there was emotion in what was clearly a deeply, deeply emotional experience she had to talk about. And then Kavanaugh, took the role of being completely overwhelmed and overruled by emotion when he responded. Exactly. So you're saying the dilemma of feminism is that women have access to a truth that the system is not quite working for both men and women. It's exactly. not just for women. Totally. I think you also say that Hawthorne creates this incredibly fascinating figure of Hester Prynne almost as a distraction from the fact that the relationship between men gets screwed up in patriarchy. Do you th- I mean, when I saw the names, Uli, Dimsdale and Chillingworth, how does a man of Dale, of nature, become dim? How does a man of worth, Chillingworth, become chilling? Right. I thought, in a way, 
the psychology that Hawthorne is really plumbing here is what happens to men in patriarchy. What happens to, and they're both, we're told over and over again, unusually sensitive, intelligent men. And look what happens to the two of them. Yeah, they're the leaders of their communities. He's yeah. the respected doctor who has knowledge of both the Indian ways of healing, the Western ways of healing. The other one is the minister ready to become reverend of the whole colony, probably one of the most gifted speakers. And Hester is so fascinating to us, but there's a bit of a trap almost laid by Hawthorne. If we only focus on this woman and her role, right. we don't see how these men are already compromised. He said, And the scene where... Dimsdale and Hester Prynne have their encounter. It's in the forest, in nature, in sunlight. There's something there as if it's not dimmed. For a moment, he steps into the light. That's right. That, then you see him in the light. And she says, is the world then so narrow? I mean, you know, can we? Go, there must be some place we can go outside this town where you could really shine. And he says, yes. And then he can't do it. And what is the cost, do you think, to men? This is a much broader question because feminism has often been characterized as it helps women in their role in society, gives them something, and there's a loss of privilege and power for men. This book says men are already compromised and are losing a lot by being invested in the patriarchy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you take her prophecy at the end, the whole relationship between men and women will be on, established on a surer ground for both of mutual happiness and also the part about what has through long hereditary habit come to seem like the so-called essential nature of men and of women needs to be modified if we're serious about the basic tenets of the Protestant religion, of the Reformed, you know, that we can have as humans access to God's voice within us. We don't need someone to interpret it for us. And also can live in a true democracy, which means everyone has a voice. And, you know, you have to say the, the American colonies at the beginning, because of these beliefs, they, they taught girls to read because everyone had to read the Bible. So Hawthorne is saying, you know, for both men and women to realize these really glorious visions of how people can live together. You can't do it if you don't deal with this psychological issue between men and women. You've written about the fact that this psychological distortion of what happens between men and women under patriarchy is the obstacle to true democracy. It's and, to the obstacle to love and to true democracy. Yeah. And in this novel, you see it as both. <laughs> Right. You right, know what I mean? Right. Well, they, <laughs> the weird thing is there is something like love between the couple, between the mother and the child, but they yes. can't express it or it is obvious and manifest to everybody. But it they can can't flourish talk about in it. nature in the woods and then in right. the town in it town has it to can't. be very, very, right. very constrained. Right. I remember the SNL, Seditious Libel. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was outlawed. You couldn't say certain yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So Hawthorne taps into something, this promise and this hope of America, that we can invent a new society, a right. better one. Right. And somehow he's, he puts these characters in front of us. In The Birth of Pleasure, you talk about the fact that some of the stories that we know very well, we have to keep on retelling ourselves because they deal with a trauma, with a kind of repression or break. And the knowledge that's contained or repressed through trauma is not easy to access. No. 
So I was thinking of rereading Scarlet Letter or rereading some of these books that many of us didn't get some part of it. I don't think we failed to understand, but we couldn't get it because we've been trained and habituated to not see certain things. Mm. To read a book, it confirms something about America. Some people are in, some people are out. We have to have rules. We have to have laws. It's difficult when women transgress. They must be punished, etc. She's a bit of an, a renegade character celebrated. But then we put the book away. And when you said stories of trauma get told over and over again, I was quite interested in that, that the repetition of a story can help us to see something we didn't see the first time. Yeah, I mean, it's almost as though something in us keeps going back. Because even though we don't quite see it, and I mean, that's what, I mean, to me, it's, it's fascinating. I remember when I was in college, I studied perception. And it, it's fascinating to me how, you know, when you sort of shift the lens, suddenly you see things that are on the page here. And you think, how come I didn't see them before? It's not as though they weren't there. They were there and I just didn't see them. So I have a feeling that on some level, I mean, I think we, we speak of it as intuition or we, we don't really quite know how to speak about the kind of knowing that we know something without quite knowing that we know it. So we're drawn back to reread this thing, novel, again and again. I mean, I think I would say that's why the novel keeps being read. And then in some ways, because it's such a deeply radical in the sense of really going to the root. I mean, going to the root of, I think, what I would call the American dilemma, which is the tension between this vision of a democratic society and the persistence of patriarchal privilege and power, again, quote from Hawthorne. I mean, this notion of God, it's really almost like a Quaker notion that, you know, that we all have our direct access to God's voice if we just listen. And you don't need someone to tell you. You just need to open yourself to this. And then the persistence of this all-male clerical hierarchy. I mean, you know, we see it right now and so forth. So I think this is the American dilemma, and here's Hawthorne exploring it. And I would say, so we keep reading this book. Why is this book the third most read book in American schools? I mean, first of all, its language is a little archaic. It's a little dated. How many tragic love stories do you want to read sort of thing? And yet I think it's a sense of somewhere in this book is something we need to know and to deal with, so we're drawn back to it. But it's interesting what you just said. It's something like intuition or that we know that we know something, but it's not easy to access, which is strange in a way. You would think young people especially searching for things. They should be able to learn how to give expression to themselves in this unmediated way before culture disrupts it. And I think the book is read in two ways. I think on one way... There is a sense there's something in this book, which is a key to American democracy. This knowledge that we have, there could be something about people being truly free right. themselves. At the same time, the book also on the surface teaches you exactly the opposite. That there's a woman, she'll get punished, she tries to act out a little bit, but ultimately things will settle down and that's it. And you know, I love what you said before about hovering on the periphery. Is Hester Prynne and Pearl are the Native Americans? I mean, in the sense, they're all here, you know. And this is when they're, they're trying to work midst. out who's going to be in America, who's going yeah. to contribute to this, and what conception do we have of a society of equals mm. where people would actually be able to contribute their voices. One of the key scenes is when he gives this amazing speech. Dimsdale, the minister, gives this rousing speech on election day when a new governor of the colonies instituted 
we never get the speech. But no. We get the reaction of the crowd. He's this incredibly charismatic, <laughs> you know, person. But it's interesting, it's empty. In the novel, Hawthorne right. could have written the most rousing speech. I mean, the language is such a powerful language in this novel, but it doesn't really matter what he says, but that people believe he says a certain truth. You know, and then, I mean, to me, it's almost like, you know, footprints through the novel, starting with the introduction where it says this thing about Moonlight is the romance writer's friend because Moonlight in a familiar room shows you all the familiar objects but in a different light. And then you have another view of Hester. That's one chapter title. Another view of the minister. And then the thing at the end, was there an A? Was there not? And it's never resolved. I mean, it's like... And not resolved? Not resolved. And I think there's two parts. That's the power of... He called this a romance, what we would call a novel today, that in literature, things don't have to be resolved the way they may be in argument. Or right, exactly. Although, of course... Maybe we can't quite resolve them. I'd be curious what you think, whether this intuition about a knowledge, the book ends, what kind of note does it end on? Does it say there is a vision, there is a way for men and women to actually find a new footing? There is a footing? new truth. I mean, that's literally, there. it's an enunciation, a new truth. When the world has grown ripe for it. I mean, and I think very much, is this the time? I mean, are we now living in that time where there is a new truth. We've come to a new understanding about ourselves as humans, men, women, across the gender spectrum, we would now say. A new truth that will establish the whole relation, I mean, which is really basically the whole realm of love relationships and human beings, on a sure ground of mutual happiness. Are we living in that? And then is there that we can see it, and then we don't see it. So, I mean, I think that sense of we hover between a commitment to one way of seeing things, life is really tragic, love never can really work. And autonomy is paramount, subjectivity means isolation. It's, to be a moral agent, you have to understand things abstractly. So certain. And of course, he's a charismatic reverend, and of course he wouldn't reveal, you know, I mean, that he's the father of this child and, you know, and so forth. And then there's right next to it, there's another truth saying, it's right here. It's just right here. Why don't, you know? And at a certain point, she says to this man who's really sick unto death, it's a kind of Kierkegaard sort of moment. She says, you know, release yourself from this, you know, walk into life. And you see his strength comes back, his energy comes back. I mean, it's it's extraordinary, and he can't do it. So, I mean, I really do think on the deepest level, this novel is a meditation about men, about these two extraordinary men who basically destroy themselves and each other. Right. There's a part of the story where they're living together ultimately, unbeknownst, one of them doesn't know who the other one really is in his life and what role he plays, and he becomes his doctor, ministers to him. I always thought there was a, subplot where he's slowly poisoning him. Well, and there's, a, there's a homoerotic subplot this, this, and, this connection. and everybody says this anticipates Freud because he's like this, the guy's analyst. You well, know? this is, I think he slowly poisons him and he's the analyst and he extracts some kind of sense of guilt and unlike an analyst, he actually just wants to deepen it and he wants to let it eat away with him instead of what Hester says to him. He says, come clean, speak out, speak your truth, then you will be not liberated from it, but you will be able to carry that truth. Exactly. And 
Schillingworth said to him, stay with this guilt because it'll eat away with you. He wants to punish him in he a way. Wants to, but, but actually, well, because in the old story, you could say in the patriarchal story, Dimsdale has humiliated Schillingworth. Yes. I mean, he's taken his woman. Right. You know, I mean. And Schillingworth knows he actually there's a really interesting, complicated conversation between them, between Hester Prynne and him. When you think of the complicated conversations where they don't follow, you know, the usual script because Schillingworth says just, you know, I'm not, I don't want to punish you. I just. And it's a very strangely honest conversation. He said, I married you probably for the wrong reasons. Right. I wanted you to do things for me, to lend me prestige, happiness, something I probably Youth. didn't earn with your affection because it wasn't based on mutual recognition of what you wanted. And what she says, my sin was not the pregnancy. My sin was marrying where there was no love. That, I thought, was an incredibly radical conversation. And then he also left her in this colony and was in Europe taking care of business for two more years, left her alone in a right. place where she was which was rather in And un- had no notion unsafe. if he was ever coming. Exactly. So abandoned her and never showed up even when he could have shown up and then just appears out of really literally out of nowhere. And says, what, you weren't faithful? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then says, but don't tell anybody I was married to you because I would be humiliated. Yeah, so exactly. actually the price of the patriarchy for him as well is not to speak his truth. Well, then it says the price of the patriarchy is it forces him to destroy Dipsdale. To take then, revenge within the rules of the And it forces Dimsdale to hide, really, basically, his humanity. Does Hawthorne give us a sense that men are aware of these costs? I well, think Hawthorne's so. a man. And this is actually, this is actually an interesting question. It's actually a very interesting question because we have debates now in the last you know, 50 years whether men can write women characters, etc., whether you can write across these lines. This is a man who's imagining a woman who knows things about what it means to be a woman in puritanical New England and in Massachusetts in the 1850s, a knowledge that, as we know, most women couldn't really bear to express. So it's this intuition, something in society that is not limited to only women can know it or well, only men can know But then you say know. also, I mean, when you go and you fill in the history that Hawthorne, he's a four or five-year-old boy and he's watching his mother scorned by his father's more aristocratic family for not being of the same aristocratic social class. So she takes Nathaniel and his sisters and goes and raises them with her Manning family. And then when he goes to Bowdoin College, he wants his mother to come and be there. And when he's practicing to be a writer, he lives in the attic of her house for 12 years. And he has two sisters. And his sister in law right. is, it, is, is Elizabeth Peabody, who's the feminist. And she and an drags him feminist and to these. And Hawthorne is known for being quoted as making racist and also sexist statements. And you feel like here's an underside of him that gets shown, I really have this sense of like there's a kind of sudden moonlight illumination, like a blinding thing, and suddenly he sees something and he writes it, and he'll never write it again. But that's interesting that someone could see something that doesn't correspond with all parts of his personality and public character. If he made racist, sexist statements today, we would condemn that, we should condemn that. But still he sees something for a moment. Yes, that's that's and, my sense of this novel. It's and, like something written in a flash of lightning. Right. And he can access a truth that is a little bit beyond him. 
I think, which is why, I, I mean, to me, this novel stands out among all of his work. And it's interesting to me, too, that in a way, its light is hidden by reading it as a novel about sin and then the wages of sin and romantic, you know, tragic love and so forth. And that's very comfortable for us. And then suddenly... Comfortable in what sense? You've written it, in The Birth of Pleasure about the fact that tragic love stories are the ones we keep on telling ourselves as if they're inevitable. Well, because in a way, it keeps us from having to take the risk. Of? Well, first of all, the risk of love, which is always a risk, but also the risk of when she says, for this vision of how we could live together to be realized, we have to change what we have come to accept as the, the essential nature of both men and women. And there's a certain comfort in that. I mean, it's a bad story. It's a sad story, but it's a story we know and, I mean, it's a much more open story. If you actually, suppose you wrote the story, somebody could come along and do this. Of Actually, Dimsdale decides to leave with Hester. <laughs> you know? Well, I think that's a part where Hawthorne also shies away with something. He says, we don't have another model yet. Going back to the old world, going back to some village in England and kind of hiding out in anonymity, that's not open to them. No. She tries it and she returns. Hawthorne thinking... It's still the only option. We have to try something new. Mm. They reject the old world, the old ways. This is not, there's nothing to go back to, but we don't know how to step into the future right now. But wouldn't you say, I mean, that's the current dilemma? Where do we turn? In yeah. Some ways, and in some ways, I think what you said earlier, how it connects to our current moment, why are we still trapped in a tragic story of love and a story of inauthenticity that we can't face certain truth? That, and going back doesn't seem to be an option. There's no going back in America in any case. There's nowhere to turn to, I think, to return to a past that was better for whom? Yeah, right. For right, what? For yeah, what? Right. <laughs> was it better? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we see the problems with that. And the same, on the other, this huge challenge of envisioning taking a new truth and really trying to live it. Can you say something about how in your own work, and I'm really interested, I asked this already earlier when you started listening to girls and you had to unlearn to hear certain things and you had to hear something else. How did that happen? You know, I mean, I can remember the moment. I really, honestly, because it was my association is to Proust, you know, where he tastes the Madeleine dipped in tea and suddenly, as he says, it opened a vast storehouse of recollection. And I was standing in a school gym with a group of sixth graders and one of them, the, their teacher, who was beloved, he was a guy, walks through the gym. They were spending this week with the girls doing writing and theater work with girls. And the, she just calls out to the teacher, yells at him because she's so angry because he's spending the week with the boys and they want to spend the week with the teacher too. And it was like the voice just almost kinesthetically went through me and I thought, I know that voice. It's the voice that speaks without instant second thoughts and revisions. You know, where you just feel something and you just say it, and then you say the next thought. And I thought it was so familiar, and it was also so surprising that somebody could do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, she just said what she felt mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wait a minute, that was my voice. <laughs> Your own voice. Yeah, I mean, I recognized it. And I thought, whoa, what happened to that voice? And now with women, with men, but starting with women, 
I'm always listening for that voice. And in the scene, if I'm imagining the gym where a group of girls are saying to the male teacher, we have every right and deserve to also be in the class with you right now. Exactly. Way, so she's yeah. actually saying the way it's set up, it's not fair and equal. Right. But it wasn't a political critique of the way the school is set up. But she said, we like you as a teacher. We want you as a teacher. And we're mad because you're not with us. I mean, it was just right. that. It was... I think there's a lot that says something in this voice. Is kind of, we are thirsty and hungry for knowledge. We want to listen to you as well. Right. We shouldn't be in a different category here. That's right. Yeah. And so what voice did you remember from yourself? Oh. Just Well, it was more the sense of the voice that just speaks what you're thinking and feeling. And then, I mean, I hear it now with my students, but the student, she was the valedictorian of her high school class, so she's one of these, you know, kind of the girls who are held up as the girl who has everything and going to a great college and has a lot of friends. She says, if I were to say what I was feeling and thinking no one would want to be with me, my voice would be too loud. So it's a voice that I and I think many other women learn to hear as, and then just the word too is key, too loud, too angry, too honest, too, you know, and as people would say to girls, I started going around with girls and I was amazed at how in the course of a day they were told over and over and over again, shh, don't say that. People won't appreciate it if you say that. And the rewards, the inducements held out to them to say what people wanted them to say instead of saying what they were actually thinking and feeling. And then, you know, when people write about the sense of inauthenticity and the modern dilemma and so forth, you think, wait a minute, that's built into this. The rewards are what? You, not... get, you get, you have a lot of friends, you're the kind of girl that everybody wants to be with, you get the right answer in school, you get A's, you get into Harvard, you, you know, it's endless. I mean, actually, it's a wonderful scene in The Tempest in Shakespeare where Miranda, the daughter of Prospero, he puts her to sleep. He says, here, cease more questions. Tis a good dullness, he says. And then goddesses come and they offer her honor, riches, marriage, blessing. And I thought, that's it. You want honor, riches, marriage, blessing? Shut up. <laughs> you know. And what's the opposite? Dishonor, mm -hmm. to live in poverty, mm -hmm. to be all alone, mm -hmm. and to be cursed. And I mean, I think the deal that's offered to women in patriarchy is, look, if that's what you want, you can have it. But it's interesting. Hester Prynne has two deals in front of her. One is to not say anything. So she got married to a man she didn't love. That was inauthentic, untrue. She knew that. And the other one was to express a love that was forbidden, which is to the minister. So in some way, she says to herself, if I speak out on the first one, I'm going to go back into a marriage that was loveless and inauthentic, so that's not a truth. If I speak out in the second one, I'm going to expose him to the same punishment. That's not a truth in the society. So she somehow manages to still express it through the letter, through her behavior, and becomes this figure in the community who embodies the truth. And as you said, other women start talking with her, usually in the dark of night when she goes and ministers to the poor, the afflicted people dying, people being sick. They all talk to her. And then in the noon stay of the brightness of the sunshine, they don't acknowledge her. Right. So she is the voice of a truth that all women have and all men have, but don't dare to speak. Yeah. And then you say, why are we still reading this novel? Because, <laughs> <laughs> because on some level, we know, we sense this. There's something in this novel that is speaking to us. And that line that you said is so extraordinary where she says, 
you know, my worst sin was marrying where I felt no love. You think, whoa. <laughs> Well, in 1850, he writes this when Engels a few years later has an analysis of marriage and writes this incredibly powerful feminist text and says marriage is about managing property relations and property right. for men, keeping women out of possession. Right. So you'll have an entire tradition that taps into a knowledge and then also covers it up. And as you said, mm -hmm. Hester Prynne is this figure for Hawthorne and then he has the stroke of genius to say, but it also causes her to be ostracized immediately. So he right. reveals a double truth, not just there is a truth, there's an intuition, but it is so costly that society does everything to actually suppress it. And we buy into the suppressed story initially. I mean, that's how I read it initially. It's how you read it. Which is a very strange <laughs> thing that the text is taught as if it was when, Hawthorne being a Puritan. You know, and, and honestly, if you're an English teacher and you see another view of Hester, another view of you think you should look for the doubling. <laughs> well, I think the next question would be an English teacher, and anybody can discover, okay, there are two opinions, two versions, but the cost is very high to accept the second one. It's an open-ended one. But you would have to say the cost is very high to accept either one. Oh, interesting, because I just get the cost yeah. is not so high because it's familiar, yeah. it's stable, it, but look, keeps, everybody it knows how to behave. It turns Mr. Dale into Mr. Dimsdale and Mr. Worth into Mr. Chillingworth. Right. And it makes Hester all alone at the end. Hester Prynne did not now occupy precisely the same position in which we beheld her during the earlier years of her ignominy. Years had come and gone. Right. She loses her connection. She has this profound connection to the people who come and talk to her. Right. But she's still living on the outskirts and she's... You notice she willingly puts back on her gray dress and the Scarlet A because she doesn't want to be inside. I mean, it says the Scarlet A was her passport into regions that other women would not tread. I mean, this is not... I mean, you know, it doesn't take a genius to see this. Right. But it's so interesting about how how we read past that. Well, and the story that she refuses to give up her daughter. And they want to take her daughter away repeatedly, as you said. She threatens to expose the whole hypocrisy of the society that protects men in these positions. And that she's raising a daughter... I think Pearl is just a fascinating character. And I know people who just say, oh, she's just the worst and just a unruly, this incredibly outrageous voice in the book. And I thought she is the reminder that there's something else in life, that there's something else in society. And the dilemma of any parent, because Hester says, how can I pres – she has the spirit of uncommon womanhood or something like this, this remarkable – and as an eye for the truth, she says – and yet she's got to to keep her within certain bounds or they're going to take this child away. And there's so, a very powerful scene when Pearl keeps on asking, what does the letter A stand for? And Hester and, lies to and her. And Hester lies and says, I cannot share this with you. I, or I'll lock you in the dark closet if you ask whether you bother me or tease me again. And there's a moment when Hester removes the A. There's a moment of opening of hope and we think, oh, this could resolve the whole problem of the novel. And the girl refuses to recognize her mother. Yeah says, you're not you, you don't, and will not come to her until she reattaches the A. So it's as if Pearl sees your identity is the fact that you're outside of this society. And you're sad. Yes. I mean, that's really, really interesting, isn't it? 
that she recognizes her mother's... In her sadness. In her sadness. You've written quite a bit about this, about children who recognize that their parents have two voices. Mm. There's, a, there's a boy in one of your studies who says, mommy has a happy voice, but also she has a sad voice sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the mother says, well, I don't want to share my sad voice with him because I'll burden him. Mm. I think that's a dilemma for all people in all relationships, not think, just parents to true, say, right. can I share with you my... But if you say we all as humans start out with an ear for both, for the whole range of human voices, for the happy voice, for the sad voice that we pick up, and little children, I mean, they don't have you know, a lot of concepts, but they pick up emotionally what's going on. And, uh, you know, in a world where you're not supposed to pick up some of what's going on, then that's a dilemma because you have to teach your child not to know what they know or not to say. And Do you think that's a greater dilemma for um, parents raising girls or boys? Or no, the I think same? It's, no, I think the it's same. A, yeah, different dilemma. Different, I mean, but... A, an equal dilemma, let me put it that way. Because you know what's going to happen. I mean, you know. I think this is a question for democracy of how do you raise children and people into acknowledging that there's a truth that they know that society doesn't want them to know. It's, and you could say that in its deepest intention, democracy depends on that kind of knowing. I mean, you know, Hannah Arendt is the one who kept emphasizing you can't have people representing other people because everybody's voice has to be able to be heard. You have to create the public arena where everyone can come and speak. And it's in that sort of mix of voices and in all the cacophony. I mean, you could say in a way now we're trying to do that with really being sensitive to whose voices haven't been heard and still aren't being heard and so forth. Because to have a functioning democracy... For everyone to buy in, that's what has to happen. You know, but it's a real challenge then. Did you think your own work by listening to those voices, which was revolutionized and really rethought the paradigm of human development, did you connect it as readily to democracy and to that political? Was a, yeah, that power? was a late thing. And I'll tell you, I mean, it was really part of why I, when I left Harvard and came to NYU, at Harvard, I mean, I had been doing this research, first with girls and then with young boys and then with couples and so forth. And I kept coming up against this resistance on the part of girls to something. And it was resisting something that it felt really like it was it was real. It wasn't just resisting your mother or resisting da-da-da. And then I came, I was here visiting at NYU initially, and I was visiting in this visiting fellowship for non-lawyers that was held at the law school. So suddenly, I was up against the normative ethical framework of a law school. And that was the first time I used the word patriarchy. And I said, wait a minute, what they are resisting is this force, which, you know, in the name of gender, is splitting human capacities into, I mean, really undermining them by either... You could think or you could feel, but you couldn't both think and feel, you know, that kind of thing. You could have a self or you could have relationships. You couldn't have both. And then I realized that's when I saw that what I had as a psychologist thought about as the requisites for love were also the requisites for living in a democratic society. That was fascinating to me. And to recognize what you just said, that under the name or rubric of gender, 
we deny ourselves a certain authenticity in relationships. As humanity, that, yes, exactly. As humanity. That and the power of gender, because, I mean, the way in which gender is used to shame people. You're not a real man. You're not a good woman. And so, therefore, you start to hide or shield or distance yourself or dissociate yourself from really vital parts of what is part of our human nature. That sentence sounded like a direct description of the scarlet letter. Yeah. How to be a good woman or a respectable man, these categories, which are what we call classical gender categories, deny and suppress what would be an authentic relationship, which is essential to democracy among equals, people whose voices matter. It's essential for love. It's essential for democracy. And then you think... Hawthorne, in this one novel, I mean, you can't be a woman, a human being, and a good wife. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. I mean, so, I mean, and then this playing, I'm sure he must have heard it because how could a writer not hear it? Dimsdale, chilling worth. Right, right. I mean, you can't be a man of worth and be in this patriarchal structure without becoming chilling or without becoming dim. And so he's really seen the cost. I have read this book for so long and think this is a woman's story, and it's about a woman's search for some role in society that's not compromised. And I didn't read it the way you've just taught me to read it as much about it compromises men tremendously, and there's a huge cost in patriarchy to men. So when I'm teaching it, I think... The women would pick this part of the story up maybe more easily. Our second reading, how this is a story of someone speaking a truth or having access to a truth that challenges the whole system. And that men would pick that up later or with more difficulty because we as men stay very invested in our privilege and power and think it's good for us. I well, have stability. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and you're certainly taught to think that. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I'll tell you, you know, I'll tell you what really led me to do that is that I was invited by Tina Packer to turn the novel into a play. So I then had to start to write characters. I mean, on stage, you know, of these characters. And what I realized very soon is that the psychology that Hawthorne really explores is the psychology of Dimsdale and Chillingworth. Mm-hmm. I mean, more than the psychology of Hester. And then... And it still took me a while to say, wait a minute, you know, is Hester, and I don't mean this in a superficial way, is she something of a decoy? I mean, she's so dazzling. You know, you can't take your eyes off her. And he describes her that way with her hair and her, the gold thread and everything else. Meanwhile, over here, he's doing something. He's exploring the psychology of two men. I mean, he goes to such lengths to tell you These are the most sensitive, the most intelligent men. And one is behaving like a bit of a dimwit, and the other is like turning into a devil, (laughs) you know. But he won't let you stay there because this is a man of worth. Because he, Chillingworth before, when he was Roger Prynne in Amsterdam, I always think of him as like Jimmy Carter, you know. (laughs) know, He's building homes for the poor, you know what I mean? Like Habitat for For Humanity humanity. and doing good. And she admired that in him. But it's not the man you fall in love with. Right. (laughs) And then she sees – and then he tells you with Dimsdale. I mean, he has the whole town just wrapped in this sermon and – I think that's a great way of thinking, of approaching the book. If you think of these three characters and how they would speak, 
I think as a man, I immediately realized if I spoke in one of those two voices, it's such a compromised voice. You're either a devil or a dimwit. Mm -hmm. You somehow are not in touch. <laughs> right. You're a horrible person and you're living in a lie, or you're a sad, tragic person living in a lie, but you're living in a lie. Either way, you're living in a lie. Both of them. And, and, and in case, you know, Cawthorn is so funny here, because in case you missed the point, he describes Dimsdale as a man who loves the truth and is living a lie. Right. I mean, right. you know, right. there's, your, there's your, what is it, you know, cliff note sentence. I mean, well, and it's important, as you said, it's a cliff note <laughs> sentence, but this is, cliff note sometimes gets to the truth of things. Yeah, right. This is <laughs> a critically important American book. And then you read in there that her scarlet letter was her passport into regions that other women would not tread. Right. And He's, this is 1850 before the country will enter some 10 years later into a civil war over one of the fundamental questions of our society, how to live together as equals. Hawthorne is part of this whole debate in the 1850s. He's friends with Emerson. He's friends with Whitman. He becomes Margaret Fuller. And his sister-in-law is, is the abolitionist feminist. So th these ideas are around him, but he's probably, as you said, more in tune because of what he witnessed both when he was a young child, what happened to his mother, who's ostracized and told to stay in her station, and she's not quite of the same level. He's and, seen a woman shamed, yeah. And then he sees her die. And I think this trauma of seeing her suffer tremendously and not being able to help her twice. Mm. He's a young boy. He can't help her right. because she's the mother. And then when she dies, he also can't help her. She dies of cancer. He can't do anything. So in some ways, I wonder whether... Even Chillingworth as a doctor, there's a sense of helplessness, but it happens twice. Once it's social, once it's biological or, med or through medicine. And that this trauma is something that allows him to see something for a moment that then gets put into this book. And that men can't really see as easily otherwise. And you said, oh, I'm And that did. after this book, he doesn't see. He doesn't see it anymore. No, right? no, right. no. Right. No, I mean, I feel like this book is like a moment. Right. You know, but we have it. <laughs> yeah, we were in touch with it, and we have what books can do. They can teach us how to start listening. Sometimes you're oh, struck yeah. in a gym, you hear a girl's voice, and you think, this is my voice. Yeah. Sometimes you read a book, voice? and you think, this is Nathaniel Hawthorne in 1850, but there's a sentence in this book, this is my voice. Right. How can that be? Right. I find that always very striking about books, that they resonate with something in ourselves that we didn't quite know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you. What are you writing next, Carol? So <laughs> I'm finishing a novel, <laughs> a second novel. That's fantastic. Yeah, so yeah. I'm excited about that. And I, oh, thank you. I really want to thank you about this conversation about the Scarlet Letter, titled the Scarlet Letter, or not Hester Prynne, a fallen woman, which would have been the convention of the time. Mm. That's actually although the Scarlet Letter, I mean, mm. in its conventional interpretation, is about a novel about a fallen woman. Right. But he didn't give it that title, so he somehow no. wanted to maybe... And that moment where it says, many people forgot the original signification of the Scarlet Letter. They said it meant able. So strong was Hester Prynne with a woman's strength. And then later there's this, some people see this A in the sky and they say it means angel. And, you know, it's like A means everything <laughs> right. except the word adultery, which never appears in the novel. And then you think of seditious libel, which this old William Prynne, who right. was one of the, you'd be interested, Julie, because he was one of the initial free speech people. Right. Right. I mean, you know, and he says it means, you know, holy prayers, not seditious libel. And it means stigmata laudis, the stigma of the archbishop. And this sense of 
you look at things one way and they seem to have one meaning and then you look at them another way and it has a completely different meaning. And the second way of looking at it is not just another meaning in the same context, but the entire context has to shift. Yeah, exactly. And